Hello and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Keekonst. Say her name. Brianna Taylor. I know you guys are feeling the rage today. The city of Louisville had already conceded that Brianna Taylor's death was wrong and paid her mother a $12 million settlement. Yet no one who fired the shots that killed her will be held to account. That is what the state prosecutors said yesterday. Each day, it seems like a new boot print is planted on our collective necks. And we are 40 days from this election. So what do we do? The angrier we feel, the more we show up on the streets, the harder we work. Let me share the advice of Maria Svart. She is the national director of DSA. Quote, no one will save us but ourselves. Make a plan now. Hashtag organize. Make a plan. Let's talk about one way to focus that plan. Go local, the way DSA has been doing so well. Of course, Donald Trump and Joe Biden are not the only people running for office right now. In fact, this isn't even about Donald Trump versus Joe Biden, as Bernie Sanders said today. Bernie Sanders said, this is not just an election between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. This is an election between Donald Trump and democracy, and democracy must win. Democracy is not just about these general elections. It is about local elections. It's about ballot initiatives. In every state, there are elections that matter right now. Mitch McConnell is right near the top of the ballot in Kentucky. Defeating him would be an enormous victory, even if Amy McGrath is no Charles Booker. There are also tight races in swing states like Arizona, Colorado, even in Lindsey Graham, South Carolina. But we can't stop with the big federal offices. Polices, of course, are run by mayors and governors and city councils. They answer to those city councils and legislatures. And in some places, your DA may be on the ballot. Find out how all of these candidates stand on defunding the police and other crucial questions about law enforcement. If you like their answers, get out and work for them. Make phone calls. Knock on doors if you can. If you don't like their answers, we have to continue to focus on organizing to defeat them. As we see in the fight for justice with Breonna Taylor, local leadership matters. Remember, these are long fights. We win some elections, but honestly, and this is a harsh truth, we lose more, but we learn. As the great labor leader, Larry Cohen always says to me, onward with wisdom. Remember, it took Cori Bush three times at running to win a seat in the House. And Cynthia Nixon, when she ran for governor against Andrew Cuomo, she tied him up. And she let us knock off the IDC state senators after decades of the Senate being held up by Republicans, even though it was not voted to do so. Andrew Cuomo didn't have the capacity to protect those eight Democrats elected as Democrats in Democratic districts, but we're still caucusing with the GOP. That held up progress in New York State, which is supposed to be the state of progress. It's literally in its tagline. I call taking on those IDC members and challenging the big gun and distracting him. That is tactical organizing. It took Trump's election to wake people up to the cozy relationship between these Democrats and Republicans in the state Senate of New York. So how about if we wake up before the election now, getting strategic now before it's too late? It's not just about Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Down ballot races and measures can pull out voters who then shape the top of the ballot. If Biden won't organize the grassroots, we can move our energy into organizing on other issues. 
Speaking of grass, weed is on the ballot in several states, including Arizona, and it almost won last time. Organizing voters to support legalizing marijuana will help other candidates, maybe even including Biden, who could really use those Arizona electoral votes because the Sun Belt is in play right now. Think about the census. This is another big task. New Yorkers and residents of several other important states are falling way behind in answering the census. This could be catastrophic. So much is determined by this headcount. How many members of the House of Representatives a state gets? How much federal money for transit, education, and other kinds of aids, even if you're an anarchist jurisdiction? And next year, state legislative and congressional districts will be redrawn based on the census count. So helping make sure everyone is counted will shape the politics for the next 10 years. A very different country we are moving into. And when I say everyone, I mean everyone. This matters to everyone in this country. You don't have to be a citizen to be counted. You don't have to be home to be counted. You don't even have to be documented to be counted. All, of course, power flows from the ballot box. It was heartening to see the thousands of people respond to RBG's death by registering to vote. Literally, thousands of people decided it was time. They were paying attention to the role of the Supreme Court And that woke them up to register to vote or maybe change their voter registration to reflect where they're living or the key states that they may be, you know, staying in right now. The reason Republicans keep talking about voter fraud is because when everyone gets to vote, our side wins, of course. So they look for every little trick to keep people from voting, slice by slice, whether it's the online far right spreading lies and conspiracy theories or actual voter suppression at the polls, their strategy is to take off bits of votes in key demographics in key states to take the vote to the right-wing-led courts. The most powerful tools of all of us are our feet and our voices. Many of our ancestors that could flee oppression, like mine, did so with their feet. They escaped oppression, they escaped death with their feet. They escaped fascism, dictatorships with their feet. They escaped slavery with their feet. Well, we actually have an opportunity and the privilege right now because of them to do so with our votes. And it needs to be said, there are still places in this country where the Democratic machine manipulates, divides or oppresses voting to protect their power, usually in primaries. My own state of New York is one of those places and we do need to break that down. And I will discuss that in coming weeks, but I just wanna make sure you guys realize this is not a one party situation. They both do it, just different times in the electoral cycle. But there's more on the ballot right now. There are several places where new voting rules are on the ballot. One of those is ranked choice voting. Of course, most parliamentary democracies use this. It solves that pesky third party problem. Under this system, you could vote for green or libertarian, hopefully not, uh, but whatever you like first. You could vote for two progressives at the top. You could rank the Democrats. You could also vote Biden second. You could vote your conscience and your views without helping to elect Trump. This system, which will be used in New York City actually next year for the mayor's race, can really break up entrenched power. Maybe, maybe in New York. We'll talk about that when we have our New York machine chat. So big picture, there is a lot to be done and we need to do, to do it to honor Brianna and to hold lawmakers even on our side accountable. 
2020 is indeed an election about stopping fascism. But with the census, redistricting, local races, and of course these ballot measures, we can simultaneously pave the way for a more progressive country for the next 10 years, for the next two years, state by state, district by district, community by community, neighborhood by neighborhood. Here is what is at the top of my news feed today. Protests gained new fervor in Louisville, Kentucky, and around the country after the announcement that police who shot Breonna Taylor in her home would face no charges related to that murder. Two of the officers faced no charges, and a third was charged with firing recklessly so that bullets went through walls and windows into other apartments. Governor Bashir, a Democrat, has authorized the National Guard to be deployed in response to the protests. 500 national security experts declare supporting a support of Biden, saying that Trump is, quote, ceded influence to Russia and failed to stop North Korea's nuclear program nearly. These are nearly 500 top national security experts, including a Pentagon personnel who have all endorsed Biden. If Biden chooses to publicize these endorsements, of course, he strengthens his connections to the military industrial complex. Bernie Sanders, of course, proposed reducing the budget of the Pentagon. How risky was that? How dangerous was that? In order to furnish the basic needs of American people in times of an economic crisis. Crazy. The more Biden owes to the Pentagon, the less likely he is to promote meaningful budget changes and overhaul the military-industrial complex. So, in other news, CEOs want creativity. <laughs> Workers want to live. CEOs want creativity. The official American coronavirus death count has reached 200,000 people and is continuing to rise. Yet some CEOs are calling workers back into the office. The reason? They say creative collaboration is better in person. Hmm. Several big banks have taken notice of studies that found that traders who came into the office during the pandemic made more profitable decisions for the banks than traders who try to work online. J.P. Morgan Chase, those good guys, says staff are still permitted to work from home if they want. But Jamie Dimon, the CEO, made it clear that ending lockdowns is necessary for the economy and for society. Hmm. Uh, I don't know what happens when no one can show up to work because they're all sick. Which brings up the point that the lockdowns never had to be economically difficult for the working class. More stimulus checks, a rent freeze, rent cancellation, and better coronavirus testing would have allowed for more successful lockdowns. And we have neoliberal government leadership to thank for the fact that we did not get those things. I'm looking at you, New York. I'm looking at you, California. And speaking of California, we have a wonderful show today. Uh, we have Joe Sandberg, who is from California. He has been a leader in the earned income tax credit movement in California. And now he's proposing uh, something that I've been advocating for for a while, raising the minimum wage to reflect I don't know, the cost of living in this country. And later on, we welcome back a show favorite, Representative Chris Rabb, Rep Rabb, who reps the 200th District in Pennsylvania. He's going to give us more ideas for organizing. And new panelist, Edward Unswego Jr., co-host of This Machine Kills podcast. We will be back in a flash.
Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. <laughs> I think we were going to play that just quickly. I, I misunderstood. Uh, we have Joe Sandberg. Joe Sandberg is the co-founder of Aspiration Bank. Uh, I did not realize you were part of Blue Apron. How have I known you this long and didn't realize that? Uh, he is a, a leading advocate for California's earned income tax credit, and he is proposing an increased minimum wage, uh, which is near and dear to my heart, given like I ran for office literally on that issue. So it's a very exciting time. Joe, I haven't seen you in so long. How you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm, you know, we're surviving here. Everybody is as, as, as well as possible. That's, I think, the yeah. right way of saying it. I'm grateful to be so. Um, right. So, Joe, I just, I just want to start off... Uh, uh, can you explain, I mean, there's like a lot of, of debate on the progressive side about the earned income tr uh, tax credit that I wasn't even aware of. Um, can you can you explain like why you're such an advocate for it? Sure. Well, to be clear, the earned income tax credit isn't a singular solution to anything. And I don't, in fact, think there is any singular solution to anything except maybe single payer health insurance. Uh, we can talk about that later. Um, there are some people on the right who use the earned income tax credit as a proposed replacement for everything. And that's a terrible idea. Uh, and obviously I vigorously oppose that. But I think that the problem we face of almost eight out of 10 Americans living paycheck to paycheck in this country is so significant that we have to use every possible tool in the toolkit to address it. And what we know for sure is that the earned income tax credit puts more money in the pockets of working people. And when you attach the earned income tax credit to a really high minimum wage that equals a living wage, then you have a great recipe for ensuring that employers are paying a living wage and that the government is giving back money to workers to make their wages even higher. So I think that where some of the division exists among progressives about the earned income tax credit is an understandable sensitivity to how it's used sometimes by people on the right as a replacement for all of the other great social safety nets that are really important. Obviously, that um, is a bad idea. I think what's good is to use the earned income tax credit along with a ton of other tools because we have to harness everything at our fingertips to fight poverty. So how does it function? I mean, when, when you say earned income tax is taken out of your paycheck before, after you've received it, help us understand this. Yeah, so with the earned income tax credit, means is literally if you earn money, you get money back, even if you don't owe any taxes. And this is a big point for low-income workers. Mm -hmm. Let's suppose you earn $23,000 a year and you owe no taxes. You still get cash back under the earned income tax credit. So in that sense, it almost can operate like a negative tax rate um, where you get a couple thousand dollars of, of cash back. It's existed at the federal level for a long time. And in many states, there's a state version of it, but California didn't have a California version until we led an advocacy effort to establish it in 2015. So who is opposed to this? I mean, it just seems like one of these reasonable <laughs> solutions. I mean, you're, you literally uh, own a bank, <laughs> so run a bank, I should say. Um, is it bankers? I mean, who's, who are the opponents? Well, I think to really unpack um, we lost him. Oh, no. All right. Let's see if we can get Joe back. Uh, I think something happened. Maybe his computer uh, died out. That's happened to me before. Uh, in the meantime, Dorsey, do we want to run uh, the ad for Aspiration? Aspiration Bank is, is, a, is a, a Joe has transformed the model of banking 
um, I guess, it's, you know, another way of saying this, like socially conscious banking. It's not public banking, of course. It's a whole other topic. But uh, Dorsey, let's 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 run his ad for Aspiration Bank. This is an interesting one. How is your money used behind your bank? Big banks like Wells Fargo and Bank of America collectively put $2.7 trillion towards fossil fuel since 2016. That's more than all the money in circulation in the United States. It's enough to spend a million dollars a day for over 7,000 years. With Aspiration, your deposits never go to fossil fuels. And ways to plant trees with every purchase and offset your carbon footprint are built right into your account. And that's just the beginning. Keep your money where your values are with Aspiration. That was perfect. <laughs> See, we didn't run it at the beginning for a reason. Uh, Joe, I think you're muted if you have a chance to just unmute yourself. So we, we were talking uh, about who is opposed to the earned income tax credit. And, and then we can loop back and talk about the bank. <laughs> I think it's very auspicious that right as you were asking me about who opposes the earned income tax credit, <laughs> magically my phone went out. So, Zoom opposes it. I, I've just learned that. <laughs> is it the Russians? We don't know. Could be. <laughs> well, there is opposition. Here's um, how that opposition manifests itself. And my experience with the earned income tax credit has opened my eyes to this whole front. And I think that progressives don't enough engage, which is, you, you kind of sometimes think that public policy ends when a bill is signed into law. But the truth is, you didn't have to implement the policy. And what happens with the earned income tax credit is that literally there is $15 billion every single year that is eligible for low-income people that they don't get because the government doesn't fund outreach programs to make people aware of it. And so wow. when the opposition comes is in the opposition to community organizing to ensure people get it. And so kind of this, there's this pernicious element where it gets passed into law, but the monies actually don't get utilized. So opponents can say, well, we passed it, but people just didn't claim it. You know, we need to understand that low-income communities are often communities that are scared rightfully of government. Yeah. And don't expect government to be doing anything that's positive for them. As a result, you have to do a lot of community organizing. And the reason we've been able to make it work in California is because we've invested a ton into organizing in low-income communities around the state, giving people free tax prep and making sure that they know about it and then get it for free. I'll tell you briefly, another really yucky contour of this is that there's a lot of vulture tax preparing firms yeah. that prey on low-income people and charge them crazy amounts. Well, they'll go to someone, they'll say, oh, there's, ta there's a tax credit for a couple thousand bucks. If you give me a thousand of that $2,000, I'll get you the tax credit. Hmm. Even though actually there's a government program that can deliver you tax preparation for free. Yeah. So that's another thing that we tackle is to make sure that low-income people aren't being victimized by some of these vulture firms. That's interesting. I think I... I, I... I think it was John Oliver or maybe it was Hassan Minaj um, did a, a special on that. It was pretty eye-opening how they have a completely different website. It's supposed to be free and they're finding ways to essentially skim money off of, of the most vulnerable people across the country who are just trying to pay their taxes. Um, so you, you were able to pass this through legislation or ballot in 2015 in California? I think this is also one of the big things we need to do more is um, work through legislature, not just positions. You know, um, ballot propositions sometimes have the appeal of being very 
sensational, you know, if you will, have some political sex appeal. Mm -hmm. But it's just, it's also sensational how much you can get done when you organize people to lobby their state legislature. Right. So what we did in California is instead of relying on influential people to call elected officials, we actually organized low-income people to call elected officials. And now we've unlocked this virtuous cycle where the bigger the earned income tax credit becomes, the more people who are enjoying it, who then are available to advocate and lobby the legislature to expand it. And so now, since we first passed it in 2015, we've actually ex expanded it substantially on three different occasions because we've organized the people who get the EITC mm -hmm. to call Sacramento and say, make it bigger so our neighbors can also earn it. So you and I have a little bit of a debate going. We haven't actually fought it out, <laughs> but over what the minimum wage should be. Uh, you know, the general consensus, at least for the presidential candidates, I can't believe this was even controversial, uh, is to, to raise the minimum wage $15 an hour. Uh, the fight for 15, that fight has been going on for almost a decade now. And of course, you know, these are not easy fights. So in my mind, I was always like, why are you shooting for 15 when by the time it's passed, it's going to be you know, inconsequential, frankly, especially in this economy. So I live in New York City. You live in California. The cost of living um, is still very high in New York, even with COVID. Uh, you know, general products, because of a lot of different issues, we, you know, the rent is high. Uh, when you buy a cup of coffee, it can be $5, and it's not because the coffee's better. Uh, it's not even because of the minimum wage. It's usually because the rent on the coffee shop is so high that they have to increase the rates. That's that's the New York situation. So when I ran for a public advocate, I, I ran. We had to create our own little ballot lines. It was called the Pay People More line. And it was because our uh, our whole th was lower rents and higher wages. Um, wages, you know, for New York, if it had stayed with, uh, you know, inflation, would be $33 an hour. And that doesn't even factor in the cost of living. That's just if wages had actually, you know, um, improved over the years. And so we advocated for $30 minimum wage. Big fights over this, big fights. We said for, for businesses that have over 75 employees, understanding the other costs that are still very high um, for a lot of small businesses. But you're proposing $25 an hour, am I correct? Yes, that's right. So what's your 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 theory behind it? How'd you pick 25? Well, you know, I'm, I'd be glad to join you at 30. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> Should we start something I, right now? Yeah, I'm for it. Here's why I picked 25, but I think that there's as strong, if not a stronger case for 30. There's two elements of why I picked 25. First of all, it's aligned with historic trends. If the minimum wage had grown at the rate of productivity, not at the rate of inflation, but at productivity, which really measures the economic pie. If it had grown at the rate of productivity since 1960, it would be about $22.50 today. Hmm. So that's one of the reasons I picked it. The second reason I picked it is that we have to learn from the history of these big fights that they take a long time. And so we have to anticipate what's gonna be sensible by the time we achieve victory. And we owe so much gratitude to all the people who poured their heart and souls into the fight for 15. In addition, the uncomfortable map is that that fight started in 2012. Well, as a result of inflation and productivity growth, $15 in 2012 is about equal to $18 today. Yeah. And every year that passes, you know, there's going to be a further erosion of what that means. So, I mean, I think you're very savvy to go for 30 because uh, obviously and unfortunately we're not going to get either 25 or 30 this year. By the time we get it, inflation will have eaten into its purchasing power. That's right.
That's right. So, um, I mean, strategically, how would we care about this fight? I mean, we're, we're brainstorming a little bit here, but if we wanted to take this, uh, you know, nationally, I mean, it, it did take many, many years and getting key unions on board in states that unions can actually influence the, the outcome. So is it, do you see there is there a potentially a faster strategy than passing a piece of legislation with a tremendous amount of pressure and, and taking to the streets in democratic states? Yeah, well, first, I think as we both agree, we can't have progressive change if we don't elect Joe Biden in November. Right. So it has to begin with that. Our, our chance to even fight requires that we elect Joe Biden. Yeah. After we elect Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, I think that one of the first things they're going to put before Congress is a $15 minimum wage. Hmm. And what we need is them to negotiate with us instead of the extreme right. We need them to negotiate with millions of people that you and I together can sign up in a call for a $25 or $30 minimum wage. And if we can build that kind of movement, and I think we can, because a minimum wage speaks so tangibly to people's everyday experiences, if we can build that and show up at the Capitol and say, no, you're not negotiating with um, Kevin McCarthy, you're negotiating with us and our demand is a $30 minimum wage. Right. Maybe we'll have a compromise at 18. And I think this is something that you understand, but too many people on the left don't. We can't negotiate from a place of compromise. That's right. The conservative movement has done this effectively for decades. They negotiate from a place of strength. They don't propose tax cuts. They say, eliminate the income tax. Similarly, of course, we would both be thrilled if the minimum wage were $21. The way to get it to $21 is to build movement and demand it's 30 and compromise from there. I, I, I love this. I think we should start. Uh, I would love to pick up this conversation offline and, and brainstorming, writing down notes, because, um, I mean, it was... I when when we were brainstorming our campaign, I mean, it was a very brief campaign, a, a special election. Um, I just, you know, wrote through a bunch of key things that I think could make New York more livable. I mean, that was ultimately the problem is people just regular people cannot survive in New York anymore as they can't in major cities across this country, whether it's Los Angeles or San Francisco, of course, um, Chicago, Miami. I mean, it's becoming inhabitable. And when I was going out into the community and talking um, to folks, union unions especially, I was talking to union members, I can't tell you how many people said they no longer lived in New York, they, they weren't living in the outer boroughs, they weren't living in the suburbs, they were living in Pennsylvania, driving into work two and a half hours, these are native New Yorkers, because the wages in unions, the wages had not been um, sustainable for, for these environments, meaning cities. And of course, the cost of living um, has increased. So I think it's it's far overdue. And um, you know, one thing that Maria Svart said, uh, who is the national director of DSA, you know, she said we can't wait for anybody to save us. So yes, while we have to elect our our leaders, you know, we can't wait for them to set the no negotiation tactics. We have to do it. We have to do it. I mean, this is really, I think, what what is so dire in this moment is clearly Joe Biden is not showing up and saying all the things that we want him to say. And we shouldn't be frustrated when he's not doing so, even though we're shouting. We just have to do it. We have to put pressure on on whoever it is um, to make sure that they show up. Joe, uh, before you go, can you just describe Aspiration Bank to everybody? Sure. Aspiration, which you can find at Aspiration.com, is the place where you can match your values and your money. On the surface, Aspiration is delivering bank accounts, FDIC-insured bank accounts, with the features you need. Right, You have to have a bank account. 
But what's really special is that Aspiration is delivering these impact features that allow you to automate and make a lot more convenient you're doing good in the world by attaching it to things you have to do anyways. So by way of really quick example, obviously you have to have a banking account, you have to have a debit card to buy things. Well, with Aspiration, there's a feature called Plant Your Change, where you can automatically donate the spare change of every purchase you make to planting a tree. And there's also a feature where you can enroll and Aspiration monitors the gasoline you buy on your Aspiration card, and then automatically goes and buys carbon credits to make your gasoline carbon neutral. Hmm. Well, obviously, none of these are singular solutions to the climate crisis, but it doesn't mean they also aren't really worthwhile. And it makes it easy for people to engage in those things, again, by attaching it to a financial product you have to have anyways. It's, it's really smart. I mean, I think it pairs well with like the divestment movement, which, of course, if people recall just a couple of years ago, people were, were pulling their funds out of Chase and Wells Fargo in particular. Um, so it's I'm sure you did well <laughs> at that moment. But uh, Joe, a pleasure having you on. Keep us in the loop about everything. Let's talk offline about organizing around uh, $30 an hour. Oh, I think he froze. What a way to end it. <laughs> All right, guys, up next, we have our stellar panel. Uh, we have Edward and Rep Rab coming up next after this little break. So we'll be back in a second. I see Rep Rab is dancing to our music. That's a good sign. You wait for it. You don't even know it's about to come. You don't know our first topic. Uh, we are back. Uh, the Nomi Key Show. Guys, I hear the chat is blowing up a little bit. Um, keep hitting that like. That's what makes this algorithm grow. You know how it goes. We're a new show. We got to like, you know, you guys got to engage and, and, and keep pushing this out there. Um, I'm excited because we have a returning panelist, special guest, fan favorite, Representative Chris Rabb from the 200th District of Pennsylvania. It's the headquarters of Progress in Pennsylvania and first-time guest. Very excited to have him, Edward Onspiego Jr., co-host of This Machine Kills. Also, uh, he is a writer, a staff writer for Motherboard and Motherboard slash Vice Media. Uh, which is, of course, a multi-platform, multimedia publication, relying on long-form reporting. Remember that? I'm glad it's coming back. Uh, guys, this is, um, we're in this special moment. First off, thank you for, for joining us. We are 40 days from the election. I, I want to get into today, today's news with you, but I saw this ad right before I came out on the show, and I was like, we got to talk about this. So, Dorsey, can we, oh, is it working? No, it's not working. Um, Dorsey, can we play that ad real quick? Do we get your attention? <laughs> Good. So, you're really not going to vote. You know it's more than just the president on the ballot, right? Check it. A district attorney decides who to prosecute. Including whether or not to go after dirty cops. Do you know who elects the DA? We do. But you don't want to vote. Can't make it rain if you locked up on some bullshit. Want trades and coding taught in our schools? Then vote for the school wars that will prepare us for the job market. Want to end cash bail? Well, then vote for the sheriffs and county officials that feel the same way you do. But you talking about, oh, they going to pick who they going to pitch, shouty. Ferguson just elected their first black mayor. You know how that happened? 
It's clear black lives don't matter to some of our current elected officials. If they matter to you, then don't let other people decide who's going to run your community. Get your booty to the pole. Get your booty to the pole. Get your booty to the pole. Get, get, get your vote, vote, yeah, vote, vote. For information on how and where to vote, as well as resources to find out who's running where you live, go to getyourbootytothepole.com. I love this. I love it. All right, reactions. I, I love. So in your next ad, thank God, Representative Rev, you're in a progressive district because this is going to be an ad if you're running against a Republican. <laughs> Hey, uh, I just want to know if if, if uh, those strippers are part of a, a worker co-op because I'd want it in my district. If hey, they own their own labor. Um, really? But, well, I mean, I mean, I I believe that we should own own our. No, own. you have one in your district right now, or no, no? But I would support one if it were worker owned. There you go. Uh, you heard it here first. <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm, I'm consistent, but uh, hey, look. Uh, that was creative. It was more substantive than a lot of corporate media does. And frankly, as establishment uh, uh, Democrats would ever do. Um, that's going to get the attention um, of a lot of folks that uh, who did not come out to vote in 2016. Right. Edward, what do you think? I'm wondering if they made it in reaction to like all the backlash they got from doing the Hamilton ads and, uh, <laughs> you know, that, they did them also in 2016 too. So, and they're doing them again this year. I wonder yeah. if they're like, all right, let's go, let's, let's try something new. Let's, let's hire like a new firm to let us know what to do. I think that, you know, you know, maybe they'll work, maybe they won't, but also I wonder um, if that is the extent of, like, are we just going to get more and more creative vote ads just like mm. now until November instead of talking more about why is it that people aren't voting or haven't voted in some places in the first place, right? Or why is it that even in what feels like a crisis, people are still not sure whether they want to you know, show up or not sure whether they should show up to the polls? Um, hmm. But, you know, I think <laughs> I'm... I'm, I'm I'm happy at least they're not doing Hamilton ads. I have a lot of opinions about it. It's a good one. And 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 like like uh, Rep Rab said, it's 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 creative. But I think, you know, to your point, Edward, today Donald Trump uh, basically stated that he is not willing to concede the election. I mean he basically didn't answer. Republicans did say that they will follow essentially the normal process of abdicating uh, leadership or power if they are Right. Voted Not out. Not in Pennsylvania, though. What, what was that? Not in Pennsylvania. Uh, no, they've reported that the the, uh, the chair of the Republican Party of Pennsylvania is looking at um, other options that look at <laughs> that, that are uh, considering a different approach to uh, our electors. Right. Um, how would that work? Meaning the Electoral College. How you know the the process of uh, I mean there there are a number of nightmare scenarios that that people have talked about election experts from around the country and 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 it and they look at Pennsylvania of course and Philly specifically ways of invalidating the results um, of um, not acknowledging a clear winner because election results will not be certified or a definitive on election night I mean that's kind of the new norm now we had that in our last primary that was moved from April 28th to June 2nd, where it took eight, nine days 
to after the election to confirm, you know, um, you know, results. And we're going to see that again. But we even though that's the case, we should be able to know who's won um, if, if it's not uh, if it's not truly a squeaker. Um, but they're going to use that um, that space and create a narrative saying it was stolen. Those folks in Philly are all crooks, et cetera, et cetera. And so now they're kind of weaponizing that by getting the party involved and potentially the state legislature. So um, <laughs> I'm going to be busy for <laughs> well past November 3rd. I mean, it's 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 jaw dropping because Nancy Pelosi's response to this was to vote. I, I, I think, like, I understand her mindset here. I do. Like, we, we made this case at the top of the show that, and we've, we've done it on previous shows, that if the vote is overwhelming, it won't be that close to have the courts decide, the right-wing courts decide, if it's that overwhelming, which it very well could be. I mean, looking at some of these other races, seeing the turnout, seeing Cory Bush's district, the lo- the number of, tur- I mean, it was insane. It was like five, six times uh, the normal turnout for a primary and that's phenomenal. And, and as a result, you know, she was, of course, able to win. And I don't think the establishment really saw it coming. Um, but, you know, that may not happen. And so, there, you know, Edward, if if you were advising Nancy Pelosi in leadership right now, <laughs> what would you say? Uh, what would you say that they need to talk about as well as voting? I mean, there, I need, they need to be talking about voting, but also just like a basic. Uh, engagement with what it is that people say in polls that they're interested in instead of like what they want to reject you know people want or support health care support climate change legislation uh, support you know either expanding unemployment benefits or you know providing more assistance for people um, and instead what have they done uh, make fun of the green new deal mock the idea that health care should be radically expanded and made or even made free um, and uh, done nothing to expand assistance during a pandemic. So I think if they did those three, you know, basic things, um, you'd go a lot farther in like reaching people and, and, you know, soothing fears, concerns, um, and hesitation people have for voting for her and the party. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's mind blowing to me at this point that like, even if they're afraid of Donald Trump and what he might throw at them, that, they can't just sit there and talk about the pandemic and this right. economic crisis. I mean, mm-hmm. the the least they can do is say Joe Biden is going to have a plan to recover the economy. The least. Mm-hmm. So um, there's some. I mean, today's a crazy news day. Uh, Brianna Taylor, of course. Uh, you know, thank God uh, people are showing up on the streets, even in anarchist jurisdictions like New York uh, and Portland. <laughs> but um, you know, the the lack of justice is is palpable and. Um, I think people are justifiably angry and, and, and will probably still keep showing up on the streets and it's just going to keep growing. Absolutely. But, I mean, you know, Rep. Rab, you were on last week and we were talking about um, how legislatures can fight back. And I think, you know, we're at this moment where, and they even said it in this ad, you know, you, you don't like the DA? You don't like, vote, like you got to vote for it. Like we got to actually connect the dots. And right now we're in this moment where some You've got a great DA in Philadelphia. Um, you know, San Francisco's got a great DA now. Uh, there are some opportunities to reform the district attorney's offices, um, but we got a lot to catch up on. Right. And <laughs> but, you know, we're we're getting more information from 
uh, an online ad uh, from some uh, deeply invested strippers. Love it. And what comes from corporate media, right? And that's why I, I keep, you know, hyping you up, but that's why uh, independent media is so important. It's, it's, it supports community wealth building, and it provides a level of civic engagement from an important vantage point that we're not going to get elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And um, if we have to rely on their inventiveness, and that's not their profession, if, 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 if we're waiting to hear substantive things that should come from everywhere else and we're hearing from strippers, that's a sign of uh, like systemic issues. I don't take, I love the fact that strippers and folks who are not supposed to know this stuff are being uh, vocal and substantive around these issues, but there are institutions created <laughs> that should be there for us so that we don't have to get to this point. And I, I also want to mention that with Louisville, and that's how you pronounce it, Louisville, uh, I'm seven generations uh, Kentucky on my father's side. And, you know, it's symptomatic of bigger issues with what happened uh, with Breonna Taylor. You know, I grew up hearing stories that my uh, great great grandfather's remains were buried, were, were exhumed uh, from a family plot by uh, the enslavers' uh, white children because they didn't believe that he should be buried there. Oh when we talk about dishonoring black bodies, this is the norm for generations. It's only different uniforms, different contexts, but it's the same thing. And if we don't talk about the root of white supremacy and how it infects everything, how it's created so many of these things, like policing itself, then we're never going to get as far along as we should be. And those are difficult conversations to have. And we need to have people talk about them in every sector of society, in every possible way. Edward, I mean, you're, um, as a writer, I'm, I'm, I'm really kind of seeing, like back to the disconnect, just the amount of work now and educating that is happening so quickly of, of Americans just about the legacy of slavery and white supremacy in this country and just how institutionally it affects every single sector, as as Chris just said. I mean, how do you, as, as a journalist, I mean, like, how, that's a, that's a weight, right? Like, that, that, that is to be carried through journalism. And I'm saying this in a particular way because there's been a lot of journalists been targeted recently for talking about white supremacy. I'm seeing it online. I'm seeing it from centrists. I mean, what, what, what's your take on this? You know, I think, you know, I'm a writer specifically in tech and in labor, you know, and these are industries where uh, the reason why some people get the chance to have like a seed fund or have an endowment or have, you know, enough wealth to fall back on is because they come from like a family or that a lineage or they have privileges bestowed up to them that others don't because they're white. Right. Um, yep. And, you know, there are different ways to talk about it in different um, situations and scenarios. Um, but the best thing I think that always helps is just in pushing people to always be a little bit more critical of why things are the way that they are. Because if, if you believe that structures and systems and dynamics that exist now are innate and natural, then it's a lot easier to balk at the suggestion that there's larger historical forces going on or political or social forces going on. And that makes it harder for people to 
to think that something like white supremacy may exist or the many forms that it manifests in, right? Where it's easy for someone to say, well, I'm not individually doing it, right? Or no one I know is doing it or no, there's no system that is overtly doing it, but it manifests all the way, it manifests in the composition of, you know, who has economic power, capital to spare, or who gets killed and who doesn't yeah. get killed or who gets criminalized and who doesn't. So I guess it's, it's just like pushing people to be more critical constantly of why things are happening the way that they are. Chris, you wrote a book about this. I did. I was, just capital. I was thinking, I was like, wait, I've read a book about this. Wait, the author's right here. Hey, Edward, <laughs> check out my book, Invisible Capital. <laughs> check it out. Yeah, yeah. Wait, so, so can you explain uh, what the book's about? Sure. Um, <laughs> Uh, I taught my kids when they were really tiny to uh, promote my book. And daddy's book is about all the things that impact business viability when hard work, a great idea, and a good attitude are simply not enough. And that is the kind of context for really looking at structural inequality as it relates to um, opportunity. In the case of my book, it's really, oh, thank you. Look at That's that, Darcy. Oh, right nice little plug. It, I wrote it 10 years ago. It came wow. out 10 years ago this month. Congratulations. Uh, and I, I, my very first page in the preface, I talk about Donald Trump like a dog. Ten years really? Like What'd you say? Dog. What'd you say? Um, I, you know, I basically said he's not a, a, a self-made man. He's a self-made brand and that his daddy gave him everything and that he takes credit for things that he shouldn't. And so much of what has allowed him to have this notoriety and prosperity um, are things that are invisible to most people because mm -hmm. until you know a few years ago people didn't know uh his story and his background that he's yeah. been given everything and still squandered most of it <laughs> and even for someone like him who has the best of everything it's still hard to su succeed in business because the system is not set up for equity and right. for meaningful inclusion and capitalism itself doesn't create more capitalists it concentrates capital amongst those folks who have the most of it. And so that for people who think, oh, well, you know, I can do this too, they're not aware of all the traps um, and issues that, that impact regular folks. And it's that much you know, more so if you're a woman or a person of color, you're on the margins of society. And, uh, you know, those are things that folks who are selling books like The Art of the Deal are not going to ever right. mention. So it's interesting you say that um, in, in today's news, uh, California, which uh, is is exploits um, prison labor yep. to fight off wildfires. Uh, there's a story that came out. Uh, a guy named Kao Saley, I hope I pronounced that right, uh, fought wildfires as a prison inmate in 2018 and 19. He earned a dollar an hour, uh, and of course, he didn't do it for the money. And and Saley said, you know, it's it's hard work, but for me, it was worth it to see the look on people's faces when they know they got people out there trying to help them save their land and their homes. Well, um, right after he was released from prison, soon after, on the day, excuse me, Saley was uh, placed not with his family, but into ICE custody. His family is uh, refugees from Laos, and they don't know where he is right now. Um, this is in California. Gavin Newsom's California. Uh, Gavin Newsom is, we have this segment called Which Side Are You On? He's a, he's turning out to be a frequent uh, <laughs> Which Side Are You On segment, and that wasn't even intentional. I mean, we talk about it, it, the extraction of, of labor at every single level. Um, in California, we also have the tech sector, of course, too, and Ed, you mentioned that. Uh, I mean, like, how do we 
where where do we start in pressuring our democratic lawmakers like you can't be against climate change and then like before paying prison labor to extinguish wildfires like what what gobbledygook like this is like the bizarro land at this point i, I mean, literally was talking about that on the house floor yesterday i'm sorry edward did you want to jump in oh, oh go for it yeah well um i was saying that uh there are these reopener bills that uh conservatives are putting up largely republicans but i have a lot of conservative democratic colleagues who are supportive and they're talking about we got to support these mom and pop businesses they have to survive and i'm like well it's the workers that allow those businesses to remain open and we're putting those workers at harm's way people who in in pennsylvania are paid two dollars and 83 cents an hour that's the tipped minimum wage which is a vestige of slavery because white well white um employers um in after reconstruction or during reconstruction did not want to pay black people for labor they had stolen for generations so they said we're not going to pay them but if you want to give them a tip you can <laughs> that is the origin of tipping in the united states of america which is why you don't see it so commonly in european and other countries because it was born out of slavery so that means the white working class single mom who's busting her ass um you know uh working at denny's um who doesn't vote or is pro-trump or anti-black lives matter she is receiving a poverty wage because of white supremacy wow. even though she's white and that's how we have to understand and we have to talk explicitly about race and our, our, our racial past to show that it infects everything and it impacts negatively the vast majority of white people in this country and if they understood that they might begin to reflect about, well, maybe this racism thing is not working out for me all that well. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think also with, you know, thinking about with Newsom and applying pressure on them, I think also another front or of this like battle that we have to do is that the fact that like the political or, you know, Democratic Party and the political establishment they control is more or less taken over by like San Francisco moderate Dems, right? Who are interested and beholden to like very specific sectors of the economy where um right. this sort of like invisible capital as you've been talking about is you know really prevalent real estate uh, technology uh finance are like some of the major backers there and until that is dislodged um you're going to see horrible environmental politics and energy politics of newsom at the same time as trying to be culturally progressive you're going to continue to see you know, a lot of rhetoric about supporting people's rights and, and liberty and dignity. And then at the same time, like he's making, he's attempting to facilitate deals on AB5, you know, to make sure right. that, um, which is an attempt to make sure that workers get paid for what they're actually doing, which is, um, you know, employ, uh, being employees or compromising on, you know, other issues for tech and allowing them to, you know, either wield more power in the political arena than they should have or continue to influence people by lobbying, by fundraising, uh, by networking, in all sorts of ways. Until we get rid of the influence of the, you know, the San Francisco, you know, moderate Dems and their coalition, I think California and a good uh, vast part of the country is going to suffer from this like constant flirting with, you know, radical centrism essentially. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I remember at the in Philadelphia of all places, uh, the convention in 2016. It was it was mind blowing. I mean, it wasn't. I I understood the connection, but 
uh, the taxis were pushed outside of the arena, and you had to walk. If you took a taxi, you had to walk like a mile and a half to get into the arena. Yet, right in front of the arena, there was this beautiful tent with like spa Uber. music, mm-hmm. exactly spa music, and like you know, kind bars and like energy water or whatever the hell they were giving us and like foot massages basically Um, and it was sponsored by Uber which now we would associate as being more right wing uh, because the executive was a supporter of Trump's or gave to Trump I believe I can't remember now we were all protesting it and then we forget Uh, but the lobbyist for Uber is a man was a man named David Pluff who of course Mm -hmm. ran uh, Barack Obama's campaign so you know, this technocratic aspect of the Democratic Party, we, we we talk about it internally in terms of tactics of the Democratic Party, over-reliance on data, not connecting to humans. But there's also a real political aspect of it, too, meaning, like, when you don't speak to humans um, and you're relying on these apps, you, you forget about the, the worker's plight, like, what's actually at risk here. So uh, before we wrap up, we have a couple of questions. I, I, I want to ask first, um, Edward, in terms of organizing in the tech sector, it's tech sector, um, any, are there any big, like, is there any big news right now? Is, is this, is California, uh, I mean, like how, how, what's the progress in terms of, of unionizing some of these um, startups, larger startups, I should say? I think the only hope lies in cross-class solidarity between um, employees and contractors. There's a really good series of books coming out from Logic Magazine that are interviews and you know, discussions about this and what might need to happen to uh, you know, improve the tech sector and free it from some of the, you know, immediately free it from some of the worst aspects of uh, capitalism that are driving it. Um, but unless contractors and employees or, or employees who are blue collar and employees who are white collar work together, um, it's nothing really is going to happen. And even then it's going to be a significant uphill battle. You have Google where they had massive walkouts organizing and they have fired or kicked out most of the organizers of those things um, because they started to come after the bread and butter of what Google wanted to push for in the future, like military defense contracts, right? Right. Right. And, you know, Amazon uh, as well, of course. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I got bills on all of this stuff. I can't. Okay, wait, wait. Okay, so are, are you guys going to stick around for a little bit? Do you want to stick around for 15 sure. minutes? We'll do like a little bit of an extra for our patrons as well. Absolutely. Sure. Great. Thank you. I, I, it's a great conversation. The chat is blown away <laughs> by Rep Rab's tipping history story. I love this. Every time you come on, you got to give us a new, like, you, you, you got have it. Made you made you love Black Lives Matter. It's good. Um, all right, real quick, I just got to wrap up the show, and then we're gonna do extra uh, for for patrons. But um, thanks to everybody who's joining us uh, on YouTube. If you are not a patron, you definitely want to join now because this is why you get extra commentary, and maybe I'll even quiz Rep Rab and get some more uh, history, hidden history that we're not aware of. Uh, join us at Patreon.com/slash The Nomi Key Show. Thank you to everybody. We will see you tomorrow. We have an amazing show tomorrow. We're going to talk about more uh, Fem Fridays, is what we call it, where we talk about. Uh, uh, f- feminist history, but really around labor and, and economics and intersectionality. Uh, thank you to Bob, the moderator, and of course, Harvey K. Always mixing it up in our chat. I love it. We've got celebrities in our chat. Just throwing that out there. <laughs> All right, guys, I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>